Our gracious, extravagant God, we thank you for the privilege of uttering these words that we mean from the bottom of our our hearts, Father, and we thank you for the fact that you have made it possible for us to have our lips opened in a genuine way from our hearts to singing your praises through the sacrifice of your Son, your beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the fact that we have the privilege this morning of returning to the Gospel of Mark and beholding um, the glory of your Son. Help us to respond in the strengthening of our faith. Help us to trust you. Help us to be people who continue to live well under our trials. We pray for those who are hurting this morning, those who are going through physical pain, Lord, beyond what we can understand, those who are experiencing spiritual difficulties, spiritual affliction, those who are emotionally down this morning. Father, I pray that you might remind them and each of us of the glory of your Son and that he is worthy to be trusted because of his great power and authority. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 37 is our passage for this morning. It's the passage that our brother Alex read during the scripture reading. So I'm not going to take time to read it again, but this is the text we'll be in. Mark 7, verses 24 through 37. And speaking of reading the Bible, let me ask you, how many of you were now towards the end of October? I realize, but how many of you have stayed consistent with your 2019 Bible reading? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Some of you are really bold. Good, good. Just nod your head if you stay pretty consistent. All right? This is confession time, right? No, no, just kidding. It's not confession time. All right, so some of you have stayed pretty consistent, and I would encourage you as we're heading towards the end of the year that you make it a point to um, begin to think uh, ahead of time as to how you're going to um, uh, be more faithful in reading the Word in 2020 so that you might behold um, our great God on the pages of His Word and all of that, right? Failing to plan is planning to what? To fail, right? So make sure that you have some foresight toward that. But as far as my Bible reading, I've been reading um, uh, the book of Revelation, uh, in my New Testament reading, uh, the last couple of weeks or so, maybe a little more than that. And boy, there are some amazing things in the book of Revelation. Amen? Wow. Unbelievable. And I think at the top of the list, my favorite uh, portions of the book of Revelation are those, those scenes of God's throne room. How many of you like those? Man, those are amazing. Of course, you have the amazing uh, display of God's glory and those amazing descriptions of of God the Father and the Lamb, the Son of God, Um, all of those descriptive terms and language that just point to His infinite glory. And He's, of course, the center of attention, as He should be, as you see this uh, wonderful, amazing uh, scene of the throne room of God. He's the centerpiece, fittingly so. And then you have these amazing, majestic beings, these angels. I can't wait to see those angels when I get to heaven. How about you? It's amazing. Powerful beings that continually are praising and singing songs to this glorious God. I love that. But the other amazing thing that I was struck by when I was reading these um, scenes of heaven's throne room is the heavenly choir. The heavenly choir where there are these angelic beings and there are these elders that are there. And then it's this heavenly choir of the redeemed. Those who have been bought out of slavery to sin and purchased for Jesus Christ. Made up of people from every nation, every tongue, and every tribe. 
I love that. I love that heavenly choir that is so diverse. Because you know what it reminds me of? And it should remind all of us every time we read that. Of the fact that God's intent was always to bless people from every nation, tongue, and tribe who put their trust in Jesus Christ alone. From every nation. He's gathered a people for himself so that we might glorify him through faith in Jesus Christ. Regardless of your background, regardless of your social bracket, etc., we will be in that kingdom one day if we put our faith in Jesus Christ. This is, beloved, where everything is headed. Where everything is headed to that heavenly scene where we're all praising Christ together. Now, Mark's first century readers, his audience, wouldn't have had, obviously, the book of Revelation, like us. But think about this. What an encouragement for the first century audience of Mark, somewhere in the early 60s, early to mid-60s A.D., to read this, these two miracles that Alex read earlier, Mark, chap, Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 37, to read these two miracles and to be encouraged by the fact that even though they were facing persecution and growing antagonism and opposition for their faith, they had a place in God's plan as Gentile Christians. Mark's predominant audience are Gentile Christians all over the Roman Empire. So think about them reading these two miracles and being encouraged by the fact that Jesus and his disciples go on this extended trip deep into Gentile, non-Jewish territory here in these two miracles. And as we see these two accounts, we see the heart of Christ, the heart of Christ for Gentile people, non-Jews like you and like me. This is why I really enjoyed studying these two particular miracles this week. These two miracles are significant for two primary reasons. One, Mark places these two miracles here to show God's intent to expand his blessing to the Gentile nations outside of Palestine. Remember, this is, as we're going to see, weeks or maybe months of Jesus going on this long extended trip with his disciples deep into Gentile territory. So through that, we see God's intent to expand his blessing to the Gentile nations. But secondly, these two accounts are so significant because here we are told how, no matter where, what your background might be, how you can be included in this blessing of salvation. How you can be included as part of God's people. And so in our passage this morning, I want us to see the importance of faith in the perfect God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. The importance of faith in the perfect God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to see this, if you're taking notes, by looking at two primary pictures here. First of all, the picture of humble faith in verses 24 to 30. And secondly, the picture of the perfect Christ in verses 31 through 37. And as we look at these two accounts, I want you to ask yourself, if you are not a Christian this morning, have I come to trust in the Christ revealed on the pages of the Gospel of Mark and these two accounts? And if not, what is holding me back this morning? What continues to hold me back from putting my trust in this one in whom I can have forgiveness of my sins and be reconciled to God, my maker? And secondly, for us who are Christians, I want you to ask yourself this morning, as I live my Christian life, 
Am I cultivating a stronger faith in Christ as revealed through the pages of His Word? Am I cultivating a stronger faith in Christ? And if you want a litmus test for where you're at, just ask yourself, as a believer this morning, as you go through difficulties, as you go through trials, as you experience relational turmoil, do you run to Christ, your high priest, or do you run to other things? Do you run to other people for answers? First and foremost, we should certainly seek people who are older and wiser and more mature than us for counsel. But is it your natural inclination to just run to people, to talk, to gossip about the things that are going on in your life or others? Or do you run to Christ, your high priest? Is it your desire to live well under your circumstances by trusting in Jesus Christ? Or is it, Lord, change my circumstances? Change my circumstances as quickly as possible. Or do you look to your own resources for answers rather than going to Christ? See, as believers, I think as we look at these two accounts, we are tested as far as the stability and the strength of our faith, even as believers who trust in Jesus Christ. I want you to be asking yourself some of those questions. Let's look first of all at the picture of humble faith in verses 24 through 30. And we're going to look at both of these accounts um, from the perspective of scenes, okay? So we'll call this first scene unclean territory. Unclean territory. And I want you to underline that word unclean because this is very important what we find here. Look at verse 24. It says that Jesus got up from wherever they were, most likely Capernaum, which was his headquarters, his ministry headquarters, and went away from there to the region of Tyre. This is significant because Tyre was about 50 miles northwest from where Jesus and his disciples were. But then if you look down in verse 31, notice what it says. Again, he went out from the region of Tyre. So he moves on from Tyre in verse 31 and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. That is a mouthful right there, okay? Because what we're talking about here is Jesus goes up with his disciples to Sidon in verse uh, verse 31, another 25 miles or so north, and then does a a loop traveling eastward, down uh, southeast rather, to the Sea of Galilee, and eventually winds up on the east side of the Sea of Galilee in this place called the Decapolis, which was primarily Gentile, non-Jewish territory. And so think about this. The point is this. For weeks or most likely months, Jesus and his disciples travel some 150 miles or so on this extended long trip deep into unclean, non-Jewish, Gentile territory. And this is so significant when you ask yourself this question. Why does Mark, who compiles his gospel this way, why does he place these two miracles here in this particular spot in the Gospel of Mark? And I think the answer is, he has just confronted the legalists in chapter 7, verses 1 through uh, 23 or so, on the nature of what uncleanness is all about, that it's about the heart, that every single person born into this world is depraved from the heart. He, He or she is unclean. And now... Guess where Jesus is going? He's heading out for weeks, maybe even months, into unclean Gentile territory. It's very significant. So he heads out to unclean territory with his disciples. 
And notice in verse 24, at the beginning of this long trip, it says that when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. We're not told whose house it is, but we know that once again, Jesus is looking for, for privacy. But again and again in the Gospel of Mark, we see, don't we? He can never get some alone time with his disciples. And even here, deep in Gentile territory, people know of him. People know who he is. And as soon as word gets out, here comes someone who needs his help. Look at verse 25. We'll call this scene two, the unclean woman. An unclean woman. Verse 25, but after hearing of him, after, of Christ, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit. That means a, a filthy spirit. This is a demon-possessed girl. A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. We don't get her name, only that she has a deep need. She has a little daughter who is demon-possessed. That uh, language, their little daughter, is a term of endearment. It could be that she was younger, or it could be that she was old, older, old enough to be of marriageable age. And this young girl is suffering from demon possession. And notice her posture. She fell at his feet. This shows the fact that um, she has a respect for Christ. In fact, in the parallel account in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 22, she refers to Jesus as, as Lord, sovereign one, sovereign deity is the idea. As the son of David, she recognizes that Jesus follows in the lineage of David. She believes that he is the Messiah. So she's got reverence for Jesus, respect for Jesus. But also this posture of falling at his feet shows her utter desperation. She has nowhere else to go. She sees Jesus as the object, the person that can help her and meet this need. But most significantly... What I think Mark wants us to know about this woman is her utter uncleanness. Her utter uncleanness. Verse 26 is loaded. Notice it. Verse 26. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. You know what this tells us right there? That this woman already off the bat, before she's asking Jesus for help, already had three strikes against her. I mean, from a human perspective, when you read that, she's got no chance of getting Jesus' help. Three strikes. First, she's a woman. That was already a derogatory title, to be a woman in those days. Women were seen as on equal footing or less than animals in most cases, especially by the Jews. At best, they were lesser human beings in that culture. The fact that she's a woman already is a strike against her in that first century culture. Strike two against her is that she's a, notice, a Gentile. She's not a Jew. She's a non-Jew. Most likely Greek in language and religion. Thus, she's seen by the Jews as, as defiled. They despise Gentiles. Two strikes. Two strikes. But then there's a third strike against her personally. In verse 26, notice she is of the Syro-Phoenician race. This means that she's a native of Phoenicia in the province of Syria. For us, that would be present-day Lebanon. Gentile territory. 
But listen to this. In Matthew 15, 22, the parallel account, it even gets more specific as to the stigma of her ethnicity because Matthew 15, 22 tells us that she was a Canaanite woman. A Canaanite woman. In other words, she was a descendant of the hated Canaanites. If you've done your Old Testament reading, God told the Israelites in the Old Testament to exterminate the Canaanites because they were an idol-worshipping, wicked, defiled, unclean people. Three strikes. Three strikes. I mean, based on those barriers, she should have known from a human perspective not to ask for help. Except for the fact that this is not just another person, right? Who is this? Jesus. Jesus who never turns anyone back despite whatever barriers we might have. Amen? How many of us can identify with this woman? Well, maybe the barriers to receiving God's grace of salvation were different for us. Maybe particular destructive sins that we had committed and we didn't feel like we were worthy of coming to the Lord. Maybe people that, as we look back, we've exploited for our own benefit and we didn't feel like we can find forgiveness of our sins or grace from the Lord. Maybe even indifference to our need to be made right with God for so long. Well, there were so many barriers that could have, from a human perspective, kept us from seeking the mercy and the grace of God, right? And yet, what did God do, beloved? He was merciful to us. He withheld not only his punishment, but instead gave us grace, unmerited favor and blessing by faith in Jesus Christ. See, we are never beyond beyond the reach of the grace of Christ. No matter what barriers you might face, no matter what barriers you can even think of, this woman had everything going against her as Mark describes here for us. She is an unclean woman, and yet what I want you to see is her persistent faith here. Look at verse 26. It says that she kept asking him to cast a demon out of her daughter. Kept asking kept continually asking, not once, not twice, not three, four, five times, continually, repeatedly, she kept begging and pleading, Lord, help me, help me. In fact, go with me to the parallel account of Matthew chapter 15. Go back a few pages, Matthew chapter 15, to see this woman's persistence. Matthew 15, verse 21, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out. This is continuously saying, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon possessed. And then notice verse 23, shockingly, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came to him and kept asking him, saying, Send her away, for she is shouting after us. They know that she's a Gentile. They know that she's a Canaanite woman. And get away from us. Get this woman away from us. She is going to defile us. That was the Jewish thought. Verse 24. But Jesus answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Notice, he doesn't send her away. He addresses her. And talks about his mission. Then verse 25. Notice her persistence. But she came and began to bow down. This is continually bowing down before him saying, Lord, help me. 
She's begging Jesus, pleading with Jesus persistently over and over again. Now listen, she's facing all kinds of barriers that should negate her even coming to Jesus and feeling like he's going to help her. She's a Gentile. She's a woman. She's a despised Canaanite. Those are the personal strikes against her. But then think about the the compassionless disciples telling Jesus repeatedly, send her away. She's a heathen. She's a Canaanite. But the greatest barrier is the Lord's seeming indifference to her, right? Seeming indifference, at least at first glance. I mean, to this point, one of the marks of Jesus' ministry is that he turns no one back who needs his help, right? Doesn't turn anyone back. So what's going on here? We're going to see what's going on. Go back with me to Mark chapter 7. Notice what Jesus says to her in verse 27. And he was saying to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Hmm. Wow. At first glance, it seems like very harsh, condescending words that Jesus utters here, right? Unless you and I have been reading the Gospel of Mark, and unless you're the disciples and you know Jesus' character and his dealings, right? So Jesus here, beloved, is drawing out this woman's faith. He could have sent her away. He didn't send her away and listen to the disciples. He wants to help her, but he's drawing out this woman's faith. Notice he tells her the truth about the nature of his mission. He's come to help the children of Israel first, the ethnic chosen people of God. But implied in his statement is hope for her, right? First... Let the children be satisfied. That is the children of Israel. And then the implication is, come the time of the Gentiles, right? Notice what he says. He implies that she is a dog, doesn't she? Doesn't he? Dogs in those days were generally considered savage, opportunistic animals. In fact, the Jews took that term and referred to the Gentiles, to non-Jews as dogs. But pay attention. The word that Jesus uses for dogs here is a different word. It means little dog. It means a household pet. The kind of household pet that hangs around under the dinner table like your puppy, right? Your dog. Picking up everything, all the crumbs and scraps that fall to the ground. We don't have a dog in the Hernandez home, but we do have a cat, okay? We named him Johnny Cash. I know, Johnny Cash. And Johnny Cash thinks he's human, okay? He thinks he's human. We're constantly having to get him off the counters and give him a a boom boom or a spanking or whatever. But he licks up everything, everything that he can get his paws on. He'll get his paws on it and lick it up and eat it, right? That's the idea here. It's a household pet. But the point here is Jesus gives her hope, doesn't he? First come... First, I've come to Israel, but the time for the nations is coming. That's part of Mark's point for including these two narratives here in this particular spot in the Gospel of Mark. And remember that the disciples are with Jesus. They're being trained to take over Jesus' mission when he ascends. So this, is not, this, this, this statement is not only for her, but for the disciples who are watching all of this transpire, who are traveling with Christ 
to send the message to his disciples that though they are in unclean Gentile territory, God is not neglecting his people Israel first to hear the message of the gospel. But the plan all along, from before the foundation of the world, was for God to bless the nations through Israel and specifically through Israel's Messiah, right? That was always the plan all along. You know, often we had birthday parties for our kids growing up. One of the things that we wanted to teach them at these parties, because, you know, parties tend to be a very self-centered times for kids especially. So we wanted to teach them the value of generosity and even be thinking about others uh, who came to celebrate their birthday with them. So what we would do toward the end, after all the festivities were over, we would, have, we would always have gift bags for, our, for the, our, our kids' guests, the kids that they invited. And these gift bags had candy in them and, and a toy or whatever, something useful that the parents would approve of and all of that. And so instead of us as the parents giving these gift bags to these kids that were guests, we would have the birthday boy or the birthday girl get this little box full of those gift bags and they would distribute to the kids themselves. Right? There were two ways that we could have given those kids a gift bag and blessed them. We could have done it ourselves, but we chose to teach our kids a lesson and have them give out those gift bags to teach them generosity and all of that. They became the instrument through whom those kids would be blessed with a little bag, right? That's what God wanted and always designed Israel to be. They weren't to be God's exclusive people. In fact, not all Israelites, right? are believers, but those who trust in the Messiah in Christ. But God always meant and designed for His people Israel to be the instrument through whom the nations would be blessed, specifically through faith in the Messiah that would come forth from Israel. That was His design. And so notice, Jesus gives this woman hope as He draws out her faith. Now, what would you do at this point? What would you do at this point? I mean, you and I, if we were left to our natural impulses, might just walk away at this point, right? I might. I might get offended. Excuse me? What did you call me? Are you disrespecting me, sir? What do you think I am, your doormat? What would you do if Jesus had addressed you that way? David Garland writes, quote, Many would be sorely tempted at this point to walk away or to thumb their nose at anyone who treated them with disrespect. Who wants to be likened to a dog? Who wants others to regard them as a spectacle of weakness? But we walk away when we don't feel so desperate for ourselves. We may convince ourselves that we can handle the problem on our own or find another means. Pride changed angels into devils, said Augustine. And Satan uses pride as a favorite device for separating us from God and from God's help. Pride stiffens the knees so that they will not bow down and muzzles our voice so that we do not call out to God in humble supplication, end quote. See, it's pride that keeps us from coming to Christ by saving faith. It's pride that keeps us as Christians from trusting in Jesus in the midst of difficulties, be they of a spiritual, emotional, or physical nature. It's pride, beloved, that is at the heart of unbelief. We have put our eyes on ourselves, our resources. We are self-reliant people. So we must humble ourselves, right? 
This dear woman does. Rather than becoming proud, I want you to notice that she humbles herself. She's a picture of humble faith. Scene three is just that, humble faith. Humble faith is scene three. Look at verse 28. Look at her response facing all kinds of barriers. She answered and said to Jesus, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Lord, by which she means sovereign deity. She reverences Christ. Yes, Lord. In other words, I affirm what you're saying. I acknowledge your mission to the Israelites first. But even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. Wow. What a humility. Lord, I'll take the crumbs. I don't need a catered four-course meal, Lord. Right? I'll take the leftovers. I'll take the leftover blessings that fall from your table. Crumbs are good enough for me. What humility. What humility. She knew her place. She knew her place. She knew that she was unworthy. She couldn't merit Christ's help. It would all be grace, unmerited, undeserved kindness if Jesus helped her. This is the heart of humility, beloved. We don't deserve anything but hell. And yet, what does God give us? Grace. Unmerited, undeserved blessing and favor if you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's what He gives us. This woman had humble, persistent faith, didn't she? Humble, persistent faith. In Matthew fifteen twenty eight, the parallel account that we read, Jesus explicitly commends her faith. He says, O oh, woman, your faith is great. Be it done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. And what was he affirming? Faith in a generic sense? I'm just a person of faith. No, he's affirming her faith as great faith because her faith was in the supreme object of faith, Christ himself, right? Christ, your faith is only as legitimate and as strong as the object of your faith. And Jesus is the sure foundation. Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the fortress, the deliverer. The ever-present help in time of trouble. Your faith is only as strong as the object of your faith who needs to be Christ as, it, as He was for this woman, right? Christ. What commendation? Jesus expresses delight. The very Lord of the universe expresses delight in this woman's faith in Him. In His ability to help her. Being the Lord and the Son of David as she called Him. C.H. Spurgeon writes, quote, The Lord Jesus was charmed with the fair jewel of this woman's faith, and watching it and delighting in it, he resolved to turn it round and set it on other lights, that the various facets of this priceless diamond of her faith might each one flash its brilliance and delight his soul. End quote. Oh, he delights in humble faith, right? I love that. God delights when His children walk in humble faith, beloved. When because of who He is, we hold on to His promises from His Word. When because we understand His character as we've come to know Him from His Word primarily, and then in our experience as He's taken us through difficulties in life, we take Him at His Word. We don't need Him to prove anything to us. God delights in that kind of humble faith. 
that is a self-abandoning kind of faith. No matter what the obstacle or barrier might be. Listen, are you feeling weak and needy this morning? Can I submit to you that that's actually, if it's the right kind of weak and needy, like I just can't do anything apart from the Lord, I'm so weak, I just don't know where it's going to come from, Lord help me, that kind of weak and needy is actually very good. Very, a very good place to be. The kind of weak and needy that runs to Jesus, not sits around guilt-driven and, oh, I can't do anything, and who am I? I'll just let others serve. That kind of weak and needy is a sinful, proud kind of needy. But the kind of weak and needy that says, oh, I'm not able to do anything on my own. I cannot parent. I cannot be the, the spouse that I need to be. I cannot be the worker that I need to be. I cannot be the churchman or church lady that I need to be. I need to run to Jesus and obey him. That kind of weak and needy is a good place to be, beloved. Oh, what a good place to be. That's humble, dependent, persistent faith that asks and seeks and, and knocks. And when you do that, remember, he will always give you an answer, right? When, we, when you seek him, sometimes the answer will be yes. Sometimes the answer will be no. And most of the time, the answer is wait, right? Wait. It's not the right time. Or I want you to live well under that trial. Because I'm trying to teach you character. I'm trying to, to conform you to the image of my son. So you need to remain under your trial, under your suffering, and trust in my son. That's a wait answer. But he'll always answer when we humble ourselves, when we're dependent and persistent in our faith. Ask, seek, knock. C.H. Spurgeon writes this quote, It's only when humility warrants it, that is when we humble ourselves, that great graces can be obtained. And so, when you perceive that you are being humbled, look on it as a sign of a sure guarantee that grace is on its way. Just as the heart is puffed up with pride before its destruction, so it's humbled before being honored. It's the possession of a joyful and genuine humility that alone enables us to receive God's grace. End quote. Good word. Good word. It's humble, dependent faith that God wants from each and every one of us. Listen, if you don't know Christ this morning, it's humble, dependent faith that God wants from you if you are to receive the kingdom, if you are to become a Christian, if he has to save you. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 15, that you must receive the kingdom as a little child. What's true of a child? Humility, dependence, no self-reliance, looking to his or her parents for everything when they're little, right? That's how you must come to Christ if you want to be saved. Lord, nothing in my hands do I bring, right? Only to your cross I cling. I come with my sin. Please forgive me. Please reconcile me to yourself. Trust Christ this morning. D.L. Moody writes, quote, Christ never sent anyone away empty-handed except those who were full of themselves, end quote. Right? You want to be saved? Empty yourself of reliance on your works, Trusting in your goodness, your humanitarian efforts, your church going, your attendance, all of those things don't save you. Those are things that are a response of gratitude and trust to your Savior for having died for you, right? But none of those things save you. It's only Christ and Christ alone, His finished work on the cross that saves. Put your trust in Him. Notice scene four. 
the sure reward. The sure reward. Verse 29. And he said to her, because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. Verse 30. And going back to her home. Notice, by the way, he does, she, doesn't, she doesn't tell, oh, Lord, prove it to me. Go with me. I want to make sure that your word comes to pass. I mean, think if you're present there when I go visit my daughter, maybe she'll... He, she doesn't do that, does she? Verse 30, going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left her. Reminds me of the centurion in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 8, who said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. In other words, Jesus, your word is enough. I trust you. I know that this is going to come to pass. What faith? What faith? Comparable to this woman's faith. And so please notice that as Jesus is on mission with his disciples, here we see the picture of humble faith. The type of humble, dependent, persistent faith in Christ that saves a person and that God wants each of his children, Christians, to be cultivating. It's not just about conversion, right? We don't just become trusting people at conversion where we, where we abandon self-reliance and we trust in Christ alone. Beloved, that is the way that we're called to live as Christians every single day. Trusting in Jesus alone. Here's this picture of humble faith. Secondly, notice in verses 31 through 37, Mark shows us the picture of the perfect Christ. The picture of the perfect Christ who is to be the object of our faith, Right? And we'll call the first scene here, again, unclean territory. Because that's Mark's point. Verse 31, again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon. That's another 25 miles from Tyre to Sidon. Then all the way around to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. Decapolis was on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Again, Describing this extended trip deep into Gentile territory, unclean territory, and they arrive at the Decapolis where Jesus had been before. If you remember back in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, Jesus had healed the garrison demoniac. That was in the same general region that now he finds himself again. And apparently, Jesus had left his mark in that Gentile region because as soon as he sets foot There again, the people bring somebody else that needs his help, right? Scene two is an unclean man. Unclean man. Look at verse 32. They brought to him one who was deaf. Literally, one who was blunt or dull. That is, this man's ears had been dulled or had lost all sensitivity and ability to hear. And as a result, notice verse 32, he spoke with difficulty. He spoke, his, spoke with difficulty. Because of his deafness, he'd lost his ability to speak clearly. He was a stammering deaf man. A stammering deaf man. And you would think that people in those days in that culture would have been compassionate to people with infirmities like these. You would think that they would be an object of people's kindness. But generally, the general belief was that these people who had infirmities of such a nature were people who were cursed by God who had done something wrong. There must have been some sin, some evil that this person has committed. And so therefore, here we find again a person that people treat with contempt, treat with indifference. He is, for all extents and purposes, a social outcast. A social outcast. Doesn't it seem to you, as it seems to me, as we study through the Gospel of Mark, that over and over again, Jesus is constantly 
helping out social outcasts, right? Lepers, deaf and blind people, paralytics, demon-possessed people, people that are unclean, especially according to Jewish thought, people who, uh, that they run away from these people, disgusted at the sight of some of these individuals. Jesus ministered and cared for people like that. What a savior. What a servant, suffering servant savior in the gospel of Mark. Look at verse 32. And they implored him to lay his hand on him. I mean, these people know about Jesus. They know about his power to heal this man. They've witnessed his kindness, right? And maybe many of them remember the miracle of the casting out of the demon, out of the demon-possessed man in chapter 5, the garrison demoniac. His reputation precedes him. So they come and beg him, implore Jesus for help, that he would just lay his hand on this man. Scene 3 here is especially important. We'll call it perfect ministry. Perfect ministry. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Verses 33 and 34 tell us not only that Jesus helped this man, but tell us and describe for us how he did it. How he did it. And all kinds of crazy people have interpreted verses 33 and 34 in all kinds of crazy ways, odd ways, to over-spiritualizing Jesus' actions here in verses 33 and 34, um, uh, some turning them into some mystical activity. But you know what's happening here? Ultimately, Jesus uses a form of sign language to minister to this man and meet him right where he is. That's what the Lord does here. He deals with this poor man with a lot of tenderness and personal care. Look at verse 33. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself. The Lord gets away from publicity. He wants to minister to this man personally and privately. He wants to focus on him alone and his specific need. What care? Next, it says Jesus put his fingers into his ears. Literally, he, he gently thrust his fingers into the man's ears. You know what he's doing? He's communicating with this man that he's about to do something about his hearing, right? And then it says that after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. Again, a symbol of what he was about to do. He's about to help this man with his speech problem. These are symbolic actions that Jesus uses to communicate with this man in a personal way who needed Jesus' help. But I submit to you also this. They tell us and describe for us how the Lord ministered to people. We've seen this again and again, haven't we, in the Gospel of Mark? Jesus could heal people from a distance if he wanted to. From miles away. He has unlimited, unrivaled power. How does he touch people's lives? He does it personally, relationally, from alongside, doesn't he? He meets them where they're at. He puts himself into their world. He's not afraid of getting his hands dirty in ministry. You know what he was? He was the ultimate perfect discipler of people. Perfect Christ. He's the perfect Christ. There has never been a more excellent, perfect example of how to minister to people, beloved, than the excellent, perfect Jesus. Amen? Never. Perfect in his life, never sinned. Perfect in his words, they were life-giving words. Perfect in every single one of his miracles. 
We're going to see the definitive nature of his miracle again here. That when he speaks, people are immediately, completely, and permanently healed. Immediately. No bells and whistles. No show. Just the word of his power. Amen? Perfect, excellent Christ. Listen to me. If we want to learn to faithfully minister and serve one another, we need to look at Jesus and how Jesus ministered to people. We need to be Christ-like in our ministry to one another. Scene four is the perfect miracle. Perfect miracle. Look at verse 34. And looking up to heaven, he wants to show the man who is the source of his power. This is a divine healing. And then please notice, with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha. That is Aramaic. And Mark translates it for us. That is, be opened. Be opened. We see Christ's absolute and unrivaled power here again, right? He simply speaks and it happens. We also see his compassion. He feels the infirmities. It says, with a deep sigh. That is, he, he groaned with a deep emotion of sympathy for this poor man. You see this again and again in the humanity of Christ. He feels the pains of people, all the while remaining perfect and blameless himself, right? In John chapter 11, it says that when Jesus witnessed the the people who were grieving over the death of Lazarus, it says there that he was deeply moved in spirit. Deeply moved in spirit. And then back in chapter 1, verse 41 of Mark, we saw that when Jesus beholds the the zombie-like looking leper, what was his response? Get away from me. You're unclean. I don't want to get my hands dirty with you. It says that he was moved with compassion for that man. Moved with compassion. Listen, Jesus did not minister to people, beloved, robotically, mechanically, right? Just doing stuff for people, going through the motions and all of that. He actually genuinely cared for people. He felt their pain. He ministered from alongside of them. Again, Jesus had so much power that he could heal however he wanted, however he wished. And it would have been just as effective. But the way that he does it, the way that he loves people, the way that he genuinely touched people's lives is so instructive for us. Amen? So instructive. Notice his power in verse 35. Unrivaled in authority and his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was removed. This is a double miracle, isn't it? And he began speaking plainly, immediately. I mean, none of this ongoing therapy session stuff, right? None of this, let's work up to you being healed and you being able to speak rightly and say a few words and then we'll keep working at this thing, guy. Immediate, complete, permanent miracle yet again. Jesus speaks, it happens, right? Absolute authority, unrivaled over this man's physical infirmity. How can he do this? We ask, Mark, what are you trying to tell us when Jesus does these kinds of things? And Mark would answer to us, he is the God man. Trust him. That's why he's able to do this. Again and again and again, unrivaled power over the physical realm, over the natural realm, over the spiritual realm, and even over human infirmities like these. He is the Godman. Trust him. Scene five, the incomplete response. 
the incomplete response. Verse 36, and he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. Jesus had a heart for the nations, but he wasn't interested in publicity with the fickle crowds, right? We've seen this again and again in the Gospel of Mark. He doesn't want to be known as a, as a mere wonder worker, so he orders them, but they don't listen, and they herald him all the more. And you would think, well, that's a good response, isn't it? I mean, why would Jesus want them to not proclaim him and herald him all the more? Now watch this. Mark gives us the response of the crowds in verse 37. They were utterly astonished. The Greek is emphatic here. It means that they were super abounding in astonishment. Super abounding in astonishment. And notice what they were saying. He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Please don't miss this. In their view, not only had Jesus done something morally commendable, but also admirable and noble. The idea there of doing all things well means good, wonderfully, perfect. He was excellent in everything that he did. What a response! Not only to this miracle, but in all of his dealings, Mark would tell us. During his earthly ministry, Jesus was a perfect Christ. No one could deny that. Not even heathen, deep in Gentile territory, in the Decapolis. They saw that the words and the works especially of Christ were excellent. And they were perfect. But hear the lesson, beloved, about these crowds. They did not trust him. They didn't put their faith in Jesus in a saving way. They didn't believe He was God and that He had come to redeem them from their sins. The woman did, didn't she? What is she? How did she refer to Him? Lord, Messiah, King. We need to learn a lesson about these crowds. They could openly affirm the perfection of Christ in all things, and yet most did not trust him maybe maybe in a few months they're going to be part of that crowd yelling crucify him crucify him right especially those within palestine most of those people don't believe in jesus they love that he's a wonder worker they love the benefits but they don't love the giver of the benefits right christ putting their faith in him see the irony of this miracle is that they needed spiritual ears open to hear and obey Christ, to trust Him, to trust Him, believing in who He said He was and is. Can I ask you this morning, if you are not in Christ, if you are not a Christian, as you continue to be exposed to Christ again and again and again, what is your view of Christ? Do you simply view Him as a miracle worker? A nice man... No, he's a a very compassionate man. I feel really good every time I hear messages about Jesus and all this stuff that he did. Or is he just someone who can solve all of your problems? He's like a psychologist who can solve all of your problems and delivers nothing, right? Or he's no better than some cosmic genie. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? The Bible will tell us, and Mark will tell us, he's God 
who came in human flesh to live the perfect life that a sinner could never live, to die in our place, to pay for our sins, and conquer sin and death victoriously by rising from the dead three days later. That's what the Bible says. That is the good news. And that is good news, my friend, for every sinner who has not trusted in Christ, that today could be the day of salvation for you, no matter what barrier, no matter your background, ethnicity, all of that, faith in Christ, He will save you. Amen? Trust Him today. Trust Him. And for those of us who are Christians, Mark wants us to know, beloved, our Lord's heart for the world. That despite opposition from the legalists and the religious leaders, Jesus was on mission. And in this mission, humble faith in the perfect Christ in himself is what he is always looking for, even in those who are his children. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, oh Lord, help us. Help us to have humble, dependent, persistent faith as your children. Father, thank you for the reminder of the fact that, Lord, when we are weak and we feel that sense of weakness in life, when we recognize that we just cannot do this Christian life on our own, Father, thank you that then grace is to be lavished upon us. Help us to look to Christ, to run to Christ. He is our sufficiency. Jesus is enough. Not only for our justification, but also for our ongoing sanctification as we are conformed to the image of your Son, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And Father, I pray for those who do not know you this morning, that Lord, today, they would see Jesus in a new saving way. Father, save them. May they put their trust in you. May they look to him who is the source of all blessing. May they see that their greatest need that they have is to be forgiven of their sins and be reconciled to you, their maker. Give them spiritual eyes to see today, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.